Welcome to Sacred Heart's podcast series, The Heart of Sheridan Road. This is Anne-Marie Turpak, Sacred Heart School's Director of Institutional Advancement and your host for this episode of The Heart of Sheridan Road. Today we welcome Sister Nancy Kehoe, RSCJ, a 1955 alumna of Sheridan Road and the 2018 recipient of the Sister Carol Haggerty RSCJ Leadership Award as our guest. Sister Nancy, can you share with our audience your ministerial and career trajectory since graduating from Sheridan Road in 1955? Well, I'm delighted to be here and yes, I'd be more than happy to share my trajectory, which was as I reflected on it, kind of uncommon. I'd like to describe my life as discerning and responding to calls. I came here to Sheridan Road for high school, and then I went to a school that was run by our by the RSCJs in Omaha, Nebraska, Duchenne College, which has since closed, but the high school is still open. And while I was there, I heard what I interpreted as God's voice inviting me or telling me to go to the House of Formation for RSCJ, which was known as Kenwood. I didn't want to be a nun, but I thought it was God's will and God's call. And because doing God's will in my family was kind of the central way that we thought about life, I went very reluctantly. I left the formation program, which at that time was extremely rigid and strict, a very insecure, anxious, and scrupulous young nun. I taught at Woodlands Academy for two and a half years, and there I was a total failure. The children didn't like me, the nuns didn't like me, I couldn't teach. Everything was, from my point of view, just nothing but misery. As a failure, I was moved to Cincinnati, where we had a school called Clifton, and the idea, I think, was, well, we'll give her a new start. So I was there for seven years, which I loved, and I did improve a little bit. But when that school closed, I went to Boston to get my degree, my PhD in psychology at Boston College. After getting my degree, I worked at Cambridge Hospital, which was one of the Harvard teaching hospitals. And while there, I began to notice that no one ever mentioned anything about religion in the, in the life of a patient. So I began raising that question about what it meant. The second call that changed my life, so the first one was God's call, and the second call that changed my life was a call from the director of a day treatment program, which was a psychiatric day hospital for people with serious mental illness. And she wanted me to come over because there was a problem between a therapist who was Jewish and a client who was Christian. Following that interview, the staff mentioned that the clients often talked about religious stuff and they didn't know what to do with it, so they ignored it. And I naively suggested that we could begin a group that focused on religious issues. When I say naively, I didn't realize at the time what resistance there was in the mental health world to talking about religion with patients, particularly patients who suffered with serious mental illness. So in starting that group, which was really just a response to a call, I only realized over time what pioneer work that was, that I was navigating an area that was unheard of in those years in 1981. 
I subsequently led those groups for 35 years. Another call that changed my life was followed the death of one of the patients that I had worked with, and I realized, or I learned after her death, that she had willed me her crate of journals um, in which she very carefully had documented for 40 years in mental hospitals, day treatment programs, homeless shelters, YWCAs, and I thought there's a message in here that I have to do something with this book. So in 19, in 2003, I began writing my book, became my book, um, and then got it published in 2009. And the title of the book is Wrestling with Our Inner Angels, Faith, Mental Illness, and the Journey to Wholeness. Another call that I received and this was one I had to discern about over time, was from the provincial team to be a member of the provincial team. Initially, I said yes, but then I realized it was not the right place for me to be in. So we can respond to calls that lead us to life, and then we can respond to calls that lead us in the wrong direction. Once my book was published, I did a lot of book tours, and it was only in that process of writing my book and then having it published that I came to peace with the internal resistance that I had had for years about responding to God's call. And then the last call that wasn't chronologically the last one, but it was another call that changed my life, was I met a man on a, a plane coming back from D.C. and we engaged in a conversation and, and he said, you know, I'll be in touch with you. So he called me later to come over and meet with him. And he was the dean of the Harvard Medical School of Education. And it, he invited me to become a part of a program that they were initiating at Harvard at that time, which was to work with the medical students in helping them to become more holistic as they approached their medical training. So as I said in the beginning, my life has been a series of responding to calls not to my own initiatives. I'm very intrigued by your comment about how one can respond to calls that lead to life or calls that lead in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How do you discern responding to a call to life versus the opposite? That's a great question, Anne-Marie. The way I would respond is that even though I didn't want to be a nun when I heard this call of, I want you to go to Kenwood, there was something deep inside of me that knew I had to do that. And I wasn't sure why, I certainly didn't want to, but I knew I wasn't being forced to do it. I didn't think I would be punished by God if I didn't do it. But there was just something in me that said, I have to do this. Um, so it was, the, and, and actually, I think because of the depth of that call, it really, held me through many early painful years because people have said to me over the years, well, why didn't you leave? And I just knew I couldn't. I knew it wasn't right. That the deepest part of me was this was where I needed to be. And over time, when I began to realize as I made retreats and I had spiritual directors, that there was a deep, if we want to call it a contemplative side of me, that felt like I had found a place where I could really be myself. And I often have thought that if I had gotten married, I think I would have been an ambitious woman, um, 
probably maybe happily married, but if I had been ambitious in comparing myself to some of my classmates who probably married husbands more wealthy than the one I would have married, I think I probably would have, I, I certainly wouldn't have found the inner life that I have found. I think the other part in terms of the calls that don't fit, in between getting my degree at Boston College and getting my uh, working at Cambridge Hospital, I worked for one year in the Jesuit Seminary in, in Cambridge. And there I didn't feel a good fit. They had invited me to be on the faculty. I was the first woman on the faculty. But there wasn't enough life in it for me. And so that's when I went to Cambridge Hospital to do my postdoctoral fellowship. The call from the provincial team had come because I had received many nominations from people in the province about being on the provincial team. And I thought I should respond because the society was asking me to do this. But as I worked with it, I never felt a deep sense of peace or joy. Uh, it was an obligation. I think I did well working with the nuns. But it never felt like a fit. So when I was asked to con continue that for another three years, I said, no, I can't do this. It, it just isn't doesn't feel right for me. So those were the, I think it's the sense of where I find peace, where I find uh, meaning, and where I find connection, and where I don't. As I listen to you speak, I'm thinking about Parker Palmer mm -hmm. um, and his book, Let Your Life Speak, and the whole notion of calling. This has been an area that I studied in graduate school following freshmen through seniors on how they identify their sense of calling in life. And we did a longitudinal study on how that shifted and how spirituality informed that sense of vocation and calling. And in this book, he talked about trying on other people's calls and how it led him to a place of depression, really, and how really responding to where he found life and um, was really what pulled him out of that. With your work with those who suffer from mental illness, and I think of what the great gift was of the woman gifting you with her journals on her experience, I mean, how more intimate and personal can that be? How has that work with that population changed you? It's interesting that you asked me that question because I was speaking recently, and one, oh, I, I know, I was giving a talk at the Virginia Commonwealth University on Monday, and one of the people asked me a similar question. And I would say that my work with the people who have lived and struggled with mental illness has been the most transformative work in my life. And the reason was because when I started working with them, I began it as the religious professional. So I was the nun, I was the psychologist, and I was going to help these wounded men and women find a gentler, kinder God. And over time, what began to happen was they began to challenge me on almost everything I believed. And the one person in my book, whom I probably is my favorite, I call him Bud in my book, he would say to me, Nancy, that doesn't make sense. What do you mean God's will? How could God will mental illness? How could God want I grew up poor. I grew up with two alcoholic parents. I have mental illness. How can that be God's will? What kind of a God is that? And so over time, their questions kept pushing me 
to really examine or re-examine what I thought. And I, they became my community. The other part way that they changed me was when I began, I had gotten my doctorate and then I was working at Cambridge Hospital and then I started a private psychotherapy practice. But there was a split in me between Dr. Keogh and Sister Keogh. And I was very conscious of trying to keep those two worlds separate. So when one of my clients who knew I was a nun would sign a check to Sister Keogh, I was furious. I was like, no, I'm Dr. Keogh. <laughs> and what happened in working with the men and women in the day treatment programs was that I, I did six groups. No, I, I worked for six years at the state mental hospital. And during those years, uh, people took their own lives. And the first time it happened, there was no service for the person who had died, and the pe because the people were on locked wards, they couldn't go to the chapel for a service. So I said, again naively, why don't we do a service here on the ward for Libby? And the staff were, no, it's going to make more people want to commit suicide, they're going to get attention. And, so, and then other people said, well, why don't we give it a try? So we started doing the services for men and women who took their own lives or who died of natural causes, cancer, lung, you know, lung cancer, because so many of them smoke so much. And uh, so we started doing those. And then I started doing the Seder service around Passover and Easter. Then we would do a Christmas service. And when Bud died and we had a service for him, I, I realized at that point, the two parts of me had totally come together and that I was kind of the, I was the chaplain for this little community mm. and they were my community. So not only did they challenge my beliefs, but they helped me find uh, integrity in myself. I mentioned that you received the Sister Carol Haggerty Leadership Award um, last year, which is an award that Sacred Heart Schools gives to an alumna who exemplifies that timeless gospel mandate to love one another as I have loved you. Um, how has that gospel mandate inspired you in your life? That was a challenging question, Anne-Marie, because in reflecting on it, I had to think that to be perfectly honest, for years in religious life, I struggled with the idea of God loving me. <clears throat> because the early years of my religious forma formation that I so deeply internalized put such an emphasis on keeping the rule, but not on developing an inner life. So, and because it was religious formation, I didn't experience God's love in that. I experienced expectations and demands and uh, not, not punishment, but certainly problems if you didn't keep the rule. I would have said that probably the line from the scriptures that is most for me is, I have chosen you, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you to go and bear fruit. And it's that sense of being called and responding and then looking at my life from this perspective and the fruit that has come from that, both in working with the people with mental illness or in my private psychotherapy practice. The years of education when I got a little bit better uh, all have been areas of fruit 
fruitfulness for me. And one time I met someone on a plane, and sometimes I decide I'm not going to tell people that I'm a nun and a psychologist. So, <laughs> so he said to me, are you married? And I thought, I'm going to have some fun. And I said, yes. And he said, oh, do you have children? And I said, yes, five. And he said, oh, where are they? So I was thinking of all the people that I had touched. So I said, well, one's in Cincinnati, one's in Oregon, one's in St. Louis. And I was having the most fun with this conversation. And I thought, well, there was mostly truth in that. So anyway, I, I do feel like my life has been fruitful in ways that I hadn't imagined. And the idea of remaining on the vine, staying connected, uh, that, that, that's what shaped me more than probably the other line. Although I think I would say now that God loves me. So how does that change in spirituality? Because you entered pre-Vatican II, so would it be a shift post-Vatican II and coming out of a habit that you realize that just you're born in the image and likeness of God and loved unconditionally, and so it's less a relationship of rule and one more of freedom? Would that have happened through your work with mental illness and their challenges of you, of how they found themselves in their state? Yes, I think, I think probably the idea of God loving me, that I think I've been most helped by that in doing spiritual direction now. I've done it since 1970, and that I've made directed retreats probably since 1970. So I think it's, it's been those times of solitude, it's been really living more with scripture, and it's been excellent spiritual direction that has helped me shift from that more legalistic framework that I, which was interesting because I didn't grow up with that in my family. My parents were not legalistic, they were people of faith, but religion in our family was not rigid, it was not something that was noxious. It was something that we did, we all participated, and it was very positive. So I think it was the, the combination of entering so young at the, the stage of identity development that embedded in me this idea of God connected with rules. And so it was, I think, through prayer and retreat and spiritual direction that that shifted. We just came from a conversation with the middle schoolers where you captured their attention for nearly one hour and they asked you questions about your vocation and you honestly shared how you didn't want to do this and it's taken a while for you to accept it, but you've had found such life in living this vocation and they're intrigued by what a day was like in your formation and you wearing a habit. And I, I was saying to you that you're probably like a Martian for them, that, that they don't <laughs> see very many religious of the sacred heart. And so um, it was a real gift for me to hear you engage with them, as I know the teachers shared as well. And you had talked with them about some antidotes to stress in their life. This evening, you'll be talking to our sacred heart parents about raising our children sanely in a challenging world. In your life and in your practice, what are some of the stressors you see children experiencing? And what are some antidotes for parents in helping to address these stressors? Well, as I said this afternoon to the children, my heart goes out to both children and parents these days because children are experiencing so much more stress in their lives than we certainly what I did growing up. And even when I saw my, the world that my nephews and nieces had grown up in, the stressors are coming from all over. Some are overwhelming, such as safety in schools. 
There's the news that people are exposed to. The fact that through the media, we know what's going on in the world all the time. And even if children aren't paying explicit attention to that, it's in the atmosphere. So they're exposed to poverty. They're exposed to gun violence. They're exposed to the climate change. They're exposed to the trauma of immigrants. And children's brains are a developing organ. And so it's putting burdens on a, an organ in the body that's not prepared to carry that much stress. We also live in a culture of consumerism. There's a great deal of peer pressure, of peer con consciousness, what this person is doing, what that person is doing. And then because it's available on social media, growing up we all had cliques. There were always the in kids and the out kids. But you didn't know 24-7 that these people were invited to this party and these people were not. You know. So there's the cosmic and the world stress and then there's the immediate stress. In addition to that, there's much more pressure on children coming from parents, coming from teachers to get good grades. They're paying a lot of money for education. They want their children to get into the best high school. They want them to get into the best college. They want them to have the best careers. And the children can't process all of this. And I think that's why we see the growing incidence of uh, anxiety, worry, depression, suicidality, use of drugs and alcohol. And it, it's, it's toxic we, that we've got to figure out, first of all, we have to take this seriously. And then as an adult community, we have to figure out how do we reframe our values? I think for the antidotes, one of the things could be uh, having a Sabbath in the family, having time, even if it's not a whole day, but a half a day, Saturday, Saturday afternoon, Sunday, a time that's downtime for everybody. No phones, no technology, no iPads, just to have a time to be and to, to quote, do nothing. Another antidote, another aspect that could be helpful is we say it takes a village to raise a child. But I think for taking the, the idea of a village means gathering with like-minded parents because the children will say, well, so-and-so is doing it and so-and-so went to this party and their parents weren't there. If, if parents who have similar values could come together and agree on certain guidelines and really commit to following those up. So whether it's downtime, whether it's the use of cell phone, whether it's playtime, two mothers go out with their children, they do something fun, having a Sabbath time, and probably the most important, and it's based on that book, The Spiritual Child by Lisa Miller, to foster the child's spiritual development, meaning helping the child pay attention to where the wonder is in his or her life. What are the things that excite them? Where do they see beauty? Do they love music? Do they take walks in nature? Something that exposes them to something that's bigger than themselves. 
It's also critical for parents to model this, that when parents model time for themselves, whether it's getting, whether it's explicitly praying, whether it's going out for a walk without an eye, you know, the um, eye, the earbuds, whatever. I don't do that, so I don't <laughs> even know the name for it. But if the parents model that it's important to take care of oneself, that they model a connection with God or a higher power, that they model relaxation time, children imbibe that and they notice it. I think another piece that's very important is having dinner together a couple of times a week and, and no technology. And at those times, to have the conversation be not how did you do in school today, but what did you find this week that was exciting? And as I said earlier, what are the things today that we're grateful for? Who did you help? Who helped you? What, what was the bigger part of your world that makes you come to the end of the day feeling better about yourself and better about the world? You shared something similar with the middle school students about um, them addressing this in their own life. So you shared the image of um, a thermometer mm -hmm. and the three, two, one. Can you speak to both of those? Yes. I, and I, I have to say that these came from an article that I read. That they had a wellness fair at Newton Country Day School. And the, the person who was presenting this idea of wellness to the, again, middle school, suggested that they have a thermometer. And the thermometer at the top is green, and you can place yourselves in that thermometer if you're feeling peaceful, grateful, happy, uh, relaxed. And you can put where you are on the, on the green thermometer, in the green part of the thermometer. If you are feeling anxious, worried, depressed, alone, upset, then you place yourself on the red thermometer. And you can, and then, what I forgot to say earlier with the middle school is, then you can think about, are there things that you could do to move the needle from the red to the green? So going out for a walk, petting your dog, talking to a friend, listening to music, praying, just sitting at the window looking at nature. Uh, so that the idea is that the children to try to communicate to our children that as overwhelming as some things may seem, they do have some control over some aspects of their life. And then the other part that also came from the article was the 3-2-1 challenge. And three means to find three things in the day that you were grateful for, and not the same things every day. And they could be very small things. We had ice cream at lunch. You know, my friend shared her uh, paints with me in art class. Uh, it can be anything. I drank fresh water today. There are so many children in the world who don't have fresh water. So three things. And then the second piece was two things of magic. What made you wonder today? What was a surprise? What opened your eyes? What did you look around and see or hear that gave you joy? So two things of magic. And then the last one was what could you celebrate about the day? Or were you helpful to somebody today? Or were they helpful to you? So there are three very simple things. But when we invite children to pay attention to how their body feels 
when they're anxious about their homework or IXL, which they clearly <laughs> are all anxious about, to pay attention to how your body feels when you think about that. And then pay attention to how your body feels when you remember that somebody in your class offered to help you when you felt stressed, or you help somebody else. Because our minds affect our bodies, and so what we put in our minds changes how our body feels. There's a lot that can be said about that statement. <laughs> what we put into our mind changes how our body feels. I mean, this is at school, we talk a lot about mindfulness and growth mindset within our school community. Mm-hmm. We were able to schedule your talk with our middle school students and parent community around the Woodlands board meeting that you will be attending tomorrow. Why is the continued viability of Sacred Heart education so important for today's world? Last weekend I was at a conference in New York and the conference was sponsored by Lisa Miller who's the author of the book The Spiritual Child. And the focus of the conference was on the next wave educating from K through 12. And the whole focus of the conference was on the importance of paying attention to the whole child and the importance of focusing on the spirituality of the child. Because in her research, she has found that children do better when they have some kind of spiritual component in their lives. And she maintain it well she states it's not her idea but that we are all innately spiritual we are born as spiritual creatures and creators in made in god's image and that in that fact what's important is how adults around infants small children elementary school children high school how do they foster that sense of the uniqueness of a child, the sense that we're all connected, the things that bring people peace and joy, whether it's nature, whether it's a relationship to God or higher power, and she distinguishes between religion and spirituality. So the the focus of this conference was on bringing people together who in their schools were really paying attention to the whole child, body, mind, and spirit. So when I, and uh, Suzanne Cook, who's the head of the Conference of Sacred Heart Schools, was there and gave a presentation about St. Madeline Sophie and the history of the society. And in doing that, it was so heartwarming to me, it was more, more than heartwarming, to know, and as she said, that Sacred Heart Education has been doing this for 220 years. Many other schools now are really getting onto it because they're so concerned about the incidence of mental stress in elementary and high school students. But St. Madeline Sophie and the plan of studies and now the goals and criteria have known this for, as I said, more than 200 years, that we have to emphasize, that we have to educate the whole child and that the goals and criteria of faith in God, intellectual development, community, service, and wise freedom are all about that. So I think that we have been onto something. I think we just need to be more forceful in how we 
communicate that. And I certainly see that on the Woodlands board and how even in the research that shows that girls do better in a single sex environment, that they find their voice. Cokie Roberts is a wonderful example of that. So I'd also like to put a plug in for single sex education because it just creates a different environment in which women can find their voice, they can thrive, and some of the other stressors are minimized. And your own first-hand experience <laughs> communicates that, your lived experience and being a graduate of Sheridan Rowe. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience of parents, grandparents, mm-hmm. faculty, staff, board members, alumni, mm-hmm. alumni, and before we conclude? I think there are two things. One is, I think that the incidence of mental stress among elementary and high school students is an invitation for adults to re-examine their values. And the question is, do you want to raise a healthy child or do you want to raise a successful child? And while those two are not mutually exclusive, it depends on where you put your priority. And in terms of raising a healthy child, I think the element of presence, being present to the child, play, prayer, patience, and perseverance are really key. And I'd like to conclude with two quotes from my parents. I had two parents who were very uh, thoughtful. And in my later years, when I would visit with them, I always liked to ask them about life. And so one time I asked them what they thought life was all about. And my father said, life is a learning experience. And my mother said, it's about loving, being grateful, and making a contribution. So if we can communicate that to the children that we're responsible for, we will be putting into the world adults who are shaped by the values that last beyond things. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to keep an ear out for our next podcast.